My next guest on the Business Samurai podcast is Matthew Kerbis, who is trying to revolutionize the legal industry with subscription-based attorney fees. He is trying to lower the barrier of cost for those that need real legal advice. On this episode, we're going to break down exactly the type of law he practices, how he came up with the subscription-based business model, and how he has seen his revenue dip and climb, and what other specialties within the legal industry that this may apply to. So sit back and listen as I speak with Matthew Kerbis, the subscription attorney here on the Business Samurai Podcast. Do you enjoy talking business? Do you enjoy reading about business? Do you geek out over the entrepreneurial journey? If so, then you are in the right spot. The Business Samurai Podcast brings you the stories told by the people themselves. You'll be immersed in a wide variety of industries, from venture capital to gourmet popcorn, learning how to be a better leader or the personalities behind solving the broadband crisis. At The Business Samurai, we believe it takes a wide variety of skill sets and experiences to be successful in business and life. Our aim is to not only entertain, but educate. For you to recognize how successful tactics and motivations in one industry can help propel you forward in your own unique business. Sit back, enjoy, and welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I am your host, John Barkley. Matthew, so you've got a pretty unique way that you kind of handle your business with a, a different business model than anybody I know within the legal industry is uh, from being a lawyer's perspective. But before we kind of get into that, I want to tease everybody. Let's set it up. What type of law do you practice? How, what, what areas are your specialties? Yeah, so at least in uh, – I have to say that I can't help myself. I'm a lawyer. In the state of Illinois, uh, attorneys don't specialize. <laughs> it's uh, Really? It's okay. Like I can't hold myself out as like specializing. But, um, but I do have a number of different practice areas that I tend to practice more in. Now, I, I did leave another firm to start my own practice uh, earlier this year in March of 2022. And so I'm still tr- sort of finding more of my niche, but I'm starting out as general practice. And what has that looked like okay. so far? That's looked like uh, real estate contracts, general everyday contracts, uh, advising small business owners on some employment issues, uh, representing landlords with disputes with their tenants, uh, some basic estate planning type things. I'm not really, um, I'm not really focusing in on one thing in particular. I'm, and, and we'll get into the model. But what it comes down to is I'm kind of like fractionalized in-house counsel. So like when an attorney will go in-house and work just for a company, uh, I'm kind of like that. But but only a part of that, like like a small slice of what a full-time in-house attorney would be for small businesses, for freelancers, and for everyday people. And so if you look at my website, subscriptionattorney.com, you'll see that those are like the three different uh, buckets that I've separated my sort of business and websites into individuals, freelancers, everyday people. I'm like fractionalized in-house counsel for people's lives or for anything. So that along with that is like a general practice. So whatever somebody's needs are, you know, I if I can't solve it, like you had the trademark attorney on, if it gets to a point where they, they're ready to file a trademark, I'm going to refer it to an attorney to help them file a trademark. But I could be dangerous with some trademark knowledge where I could like advise somebody on you know, thoughts and considerations in, in setting up a brand and setting up a business. But then when it comes time to the actual filing, that's something that I'm going to recommend that they go to, you know, outside counsel, like at a company, like eventually in-house counsel can't handle everything. So they're going to refer to outside counsel. So I do still, I kind of operate like that. Um, and I don't do any litigation. I, I have eight years of litigation experience, but I've kind of left that uh, behind me now. So speaking of litigation, you're talking about actually going into a courtroom and, and arguing a case for 
plaintiffs and defendants and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I did that for years, and um, I, and and I got my fill of it. And frankly, it's a huge waste for society. So my my opinion is let's let's uh, let's do litigation avoidance. I'm going to help people resolve cases and resolve disputes before ending up in court. And one of the ways I do this is with my my business model by making it way more affordable to hire me to do that than any other attorney. Uh, probably in America, although I'm only licensed in Illinois and I don't, I haven't yet come across an attorney that charges what I charge. So I, I like to think at least right now, I'm the most affordable attorney in America. If you live in Illinois or are transacting in the state of Illinois, you could hire me. Oh yeah, no doubt. So, and trust me, we're going to go deep into how you came up with the business model. I want to tease that because I, I still want to well, set the groundwork because I don't know how many people actually have interacted with with lawyers before. I've consulted with with plenty in the technical side that were basically either criminal defense or kind of family law practice. So I've had a lot of exposure to actually how they function and how they and how they work, how they charge people. But I don't know from a day to day perspective. What you know, people always think of, oh, it's expensive, or I can figure this out on myself on, on, on Google. Who is typically the person that's finally reached enough that that level? They said, I need to go. I need to go get some help. So how did, how does it how does that structure usually work? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question, and this is also one of the reasons why I think the legal profession is broken. Because if you listen to like like marketing companies that exclusively work for lawyers and help them get business. The things that they talk about are somebody's pain point is reached such a tipping point that they have no choice but to pay you a premium to hire you. And that doesn't make any sense. From like, a, if you look at any other industry, any other business model, you're, you're gonna wait until somebody's issue has, has reached such a boiling point that they have no choice but to hire an expert. Like this is like waiting until, you know, the pipe has burst before hiring a plumber. Right. That's too late. And then the plumber is going to come in and they're right. going to charge you five times what they would normally charge you because they do have to ignore other business. Right. That they're that they're handling, you know, but but there's no. But the problem is, is lawyers only price for that. They only price for the premium. And that's typically done with the billable hour. Now, the lowest billable hour I've seen for private practice attorneys and I'm well networked with the American Bar Association, which I think we're going to get into. So we can mm -hmm. talk about that. But I, I do yep. know what lawyers are charging across the country. The lowest I've seen is 250 an hour. And I don't know about you, John, like on a personal level, like maybe for your business, it's another story. But on a personal level, I couldn't afford 250 an hour. Mm -hmm. And so like for everyday people, they're already priced out of hiring lawyers unless they have no other choice. And that's afford and that's cheap on the billable hour, 250 an hour. You know, it, it, it gets as high as $1,000 an hour when you're dealing with like antitrust issues, right? Of course, but then you're probably a company. Uh, but, but for small businesses, they're also typically priced out of that. So, and, and it's, like, it's like going to the, a restaurant and ordering a fish at market price. But the, the server says, uh, I can't tell you what that market price is until you finished eating the fish. And then you have no choice. <laughs> you have to pay it. Right. Because right? you ate the fish. So you got the legal services. So you have to pay it. And like lawyers end up in disputes with their clients. They're chasing bills. It's a really inefficient way to run a business, let alone the fact that it's not affordable, you know, for clients. And, and, and so I, I've set it up. So for, for $20 a month, of course, it's $19.99 a month. Uh, you could get access to my to my uh, my messages. So I have a client portal. I don't communicate over email with clients because it's it's not encrypted. It's less secure. So they could message me Correct. through a client portal, or they could through their client portal book like a Zoom or a phone call meeting with me, and and, and they they have access to my calendar. 
Now, at the $20 a month, they only have access to a small amount of my calendar, right? Like I only have two hours a day to those level subscribers, but I do have that carved out specifically for them. Uh, but then for, for you know the subscribers that pay a higher amount or the freelancers or business clients, they have access to my entire calendar. So it's not about – and it's only in 15-minute slices. So like I'm controlling my – you know, my calendar, I'm controlling my time because I'm not billing by my time, which is how most attorneys bill. So this way they know exactly what they're paying per month. They know how to get in touch with me and, they, and they're encouraged to get in touch with me as opposed to, you know, people like they're like, should I call my lawyer? Because I'm going to be billed $250 an hour, you know, but for me, it's like, no, I want you to call me because I want to help you because eventually you're going to need some services that go outside of just the messaging advice, the, the over the phone advice. And you're going to need me to file something on your behalf. You're going to need me to help you negotiate or review a contract. And there I have very predictable, transparent, flat fee pricing on my website and in my client portal for what that's going to cost you exactly. So there's no surprises. So that's I've designed the anti-law firm so that my clients can know exactly what it's going to cost. And, and it's also more affordable than, than like what the billable hour would be. Now, there are some lawyers who are doing the subscription model where they're trying to keep parity with the billable hour. So it's still expensive, but the clients know what it's going to cost up front. So, so there is like flat fee subscription model attorneys out there who are trying this, but it's still, like, it's still pricing out a lot of people. So I've decided I'm going to attack this blue ocean of, of people who have been long unserved and just make legal services more affordable because the model, you know, that like, what is the typical thing? You know, you, a lot of people don't hire lawyers for exactly those reasons. So I will share two stories. One is personal and one is what I observed and that, that backs that up. So years ago, I was uh, consulting from a technology perspective, because that's I got a tech and cyber and do more business stuff now where I merge it together from a strategic standpoint. But it was very hands on in my earlier days. And I remember being in this basically as family law practice. There was just a handful of lawyers, a couple of admin people. And on the the person's desk, the lawyer's desk was literally a long sheet of paper where they had broken down their time to the minute. I kid you. It wasn't even like you see a lot of people where they were going, hey, it's a minimum of 15 minutes or it's a minimum of blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever you've got. But she actually had broken it down per minute. And I remember sitting in there going, how much time did it take just to track that on its own? Because each thing would be three minutes for this, three minutes for this and two minutes for this and one minute for this. It was absolutely, absolutely insane. And to me, that seemed to be inefficient from just an implementation standpoint on their side. And then on, on, on the other end, on a personal experience, we, we, uh, my wife and I recently moved from a house that was utterly horrible. We started, I started doing a bunch of digging because the, the builder was just wasn't living up to expectations. If you name it, everything in the house broke. We finally got to a point that we said, we, we, something, we got something's not right. We got to get some help with this. I can't get them to do anything. The short story, they couldn't help anyway because laws aren't in Virginia, don't do anything to help the homeowner. But everybody that would even talk to us, it was a minimum of $300 an hour, minimum. Or, or actually, I take that back, they were all $300 an hour. It wasn't even a minimum. It was just no matter who you called. There was only a handful of them that would even talk to you about real estate, but you never knew what you were going to get billed for. So we'd go meet with them. We'd get, we'd have a meeting and then three weeks later, we get a letter in the mail and then saying, oh yeah, we charged you for 20 minutes to write this letter. I said, dude, I don't need a letter. 
take five minutes and send me an email. How about this? I took notes during the meeting. Don't send me anything and, and start charging me from that predictable standpoint. So that was like my personal experience until it just got, you know, it wasn't worth paying anymore. We weren't getting anywhere. So I like the idea of having a very predictable revenue model for you. I imagine it's easier to, to control. How did you come up with this idea and how have you seen your revenue, profit, loss compare when you transition from hourly, typical hourly billing to the subscription model? Yeah, I, these are some really good questions. Uh, so I, I came up with it sort of, it was just like a, a, a genesis of all these different things synthesizing into this idea for the subscription model. Like I didn't necessarily read one thing and it's like, aha, that I'm going to launch the subscription model. It wasn't really a light bulb moment. It was sort of a, yeah, just so many things came together. I, uh, and this ties into my involvement in the American Bar Association. So when I was a law student, I got involved in the ABA and uh, I ended up getting elected to serve as chair of the, Amer of the law student division for the ABA. And that's kind of like being president of America's law students, at least at the accredited ABA uh, uh, law schools. <laughs> and in California, that's cool. there's a lot of non-accredited ABA law schools. Um, it's not. It's like chairing a board that does, that puts on events and advocates for like reform for law students, right? So I got to travel the country, lobby for legal education reform, and and just talk to students everywhere. And um, the biggest issue that law students were facing upon graduating, and this hasn't changed in you know eleven years, is uh, is student loans, like. You know, yeah. like everyone's really worried about getting a job and paying down their student loans. You know, people think going to law school is like a surefire way to become a millionaire. It's not like 10 percent of like graduates of, of like on on the whole, or at least this was true years ago. I'm sure it's in the same ballpark. Uh, actually, like graduate, like making a lot of money, like most lawyers make between like 50 and 80 thousand dollars upon graduating. Now that you could increase that, right? I mean, because the sky's the limit, especially if you could bring in business. Like business development is like a huge thing, right? And especially if you adopt the subscription model, you can maybe get that there sooner. Now, my model is not going to make you a millionaire necessarily, especially if you're a solo practitioner like me. But you could have a very sustainable lifestyle business and uh, and pay down your student loans and like live a comfortable life. Uh, and provide service to a lot of people because with the subscription model, you could scale your business. There's only so many hours in the day. But I, I, I sort of had that problem in the back of my head. And then as I continued to be involved in the ABA as a young lawyer, take on other leadership roles, one of the other big things that they push is access to justice. You know, lawyers aren't affordable. You know, we have to find a way to do access to justice. What, what's one of the ways we do this? We lobby Congress. And I've actually been to Congress uh, in person and done Zoom meetings in this era to lobby Congress to give more money to the Legal Services Corporation. They, like, they, they, they give hundreds of millions of dollars to legal service corporation and uh and they spread it across the country in different states for different like nonprofits and legal services organizations to give pro bono or free legal services to people who can't afford it the problem is is you have to be under a certain income level to even qualify for that so there's this massive gap in 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 lack of access to justice and legal services that isn't being filled can i let me can i ask something related yeah. to that when you talk when you talked about Having access, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking like court appointed stuff, watched a lot of law, law and order and things of that nature. Is the threshold a hard barrier? So if you're a dollar over it, you get no assistance? Or is it like a staircase where the, the amount of assistance you can get uh, 
de decreases the more income that you have. How does that work? I'm, I'm fairly certain that if you make over a certain amount of money, you don't qualify. It's just a hard I'm cap. Pretty sure. Yeah, so, I'm pretty okay. sure. I mean, I, I don't I don't engage in pro bono legal services, and I never have because sure. I came out of law school with six figures of student loan debt, and and I had to go get the highest paying job that I could, you know. So I've never done that. I volunteer in other ways, like through the American Bar Association, trying to improve the profession, increase access to justice, all that. And I've never been in the financial situation where I've needed that. So I don't know from personal experience, but I'm fairly certain in light of my, you know, other knowledge that I've gained from being involved in the ABA that it's a hard cap. Um, but that being said, they, they, they don't necessarily know that they could go get legal services, right, that they qualify for. right? So, so there's a huge, huge problem. So then I'm just very involved in like legal tech and innovation in the profession. And uh, I, I might have read an article or two of like some attorneys trying what we call alternative free arrangements. And I was also billing by the hour and just hating it. Right. And so I've got these things in the back of my head and it all kind of came together. It's like, wait a minute. The subscription model is a way to uh, help young lawyers uh, make more money. Uh, without having to build their time, which actually helps with like mental health issues and like all these, all these other problems that it solves, which the profession tries to deal with. Uh, and, uh, and it creates like sustainable, you know, sustainable revenue if it's implemented the right way. Uh, and then people could actually like see what they're, what they're going to be paying, which is solving another problem that we already talked about. But also you could, you could, since you could take on more clients and scale your business, you could actually lower the cost to, del to deliver those services. And then the incentives are aligned to adopt technology to make your practice efficient and effective instead of trying to take as long as it takes to work on something when you're billing by the hour, right? So you're starting to align the incentives, which so then just according to economics, right, you should be able to lower your price per client per service. So that could help bridge the access to justice gap. It could help lawyers make money to pay down their student loan debts. And so it just kind of all came together for me. I was like, aha. And so I just started to design my own model. I designed it over two years. And then I, I did end up finding other lawyers who have the model and are using it in their own ways. Actually, it, it really started in the trademark copyright space because you need to continue to protect your brand, send cease and desist letters. And so like there's ongoing, obvious ongoing legal services, right? So it sort of started in that space. Kim Bennett, the first guest I had on my podcast, Law Subscribed. So like I, now I was like, I'm doing all this research. I'm talking to these lawyers. I might I might as well start a podcast about it, right? So, uh, so I have a podcast. Um, and, and so I had her on my first episode. She was really one of the first pioneers in the space. And that's where she did it. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm trying something very new. I'm trying to do a subscription model that's accessible to everybody, everybody in the state of Illinois, right? If you're transacting in the state. <laughs> but this is one of the reasons why I'm appearing on your podcast, John, is to spread the word about it because I'm only a solo practitioner in my state. I want, you know, you've had lawyers on your show and I want people to know like they could demand this of their lawyers about more transparent pricing. And, and if they don't know it, and like if the lawyer they're talking to doesn't know it, then these people who listen to your show can say to their lawyer, well, hey, there's this attorney, Matthew Kerbis. He has this podcast mm -hmm. called Law Subscribe. Go listen to that podcast. And then maybe you, we'll, we'll talk again next week after you've launched a more, you know, more <laughs> affordable practice. But, but it's really, I, I see it as kind of a silver bullet to solve a lot of these problems. I don't think it's going to solve it completely. Some people can't afford even $20 a month, right? But I think it could help close that gap. So then the, the money that we're spending on everything else can be more focused on the people that actually need it. And the money we're spending, I mean, like as a government, as a society. Uh, and I think you asked some other questions too, but first I'll see if you have any follow-up 
uh, to all that. Oh, you, you, there was a lot there. I was trying to take notes so I didn't forget in the in the middle of the in the middle of the stream. So, uh, a few things. First off, with the way with the with the type of niches that you're currently doing in there, if what's the engagement? What's the incentive for somebody to go? Hey, I need you on Tuesday of this month, but I know that the the follow-on piece will not be three months from now. How does the model work for somebody? Are, are, are they locked in for a year? Are they, is it just a month to month as, as they need it? Um, so they, they stick with you during those, you know, maybe there's three months you're waiting. Let's, let's take patent and trademark attorney, for example. The lawyer that, that I've used for that is a flat fee. He's just totally flat fee. We will go, no kidding, a year and not hear anything from the United States Patent and Trade Office, a year. So with that model, I don't know that there would be an incentive for me to stick, you know, because there's nothing for him to do and there's nothing for me to do. We're literally waiting on a third party. How does that function with how you deliver services now? Yeah, so so um, you, you're right in that that aspect of hiring that trademark attorney, that's only going to be if, if you're just filing a trademark and you're not actually protecting your brand and you don't need to send cease and desist. A flat fee makes a lot of sense for that kind mm -hmm. of engagement, right? But if you're going to be, uh, like monitoring and protecting your brand or filing, you know, little, you know, if you're pop, you know, posting things on, on social media that need like copyright protection too, which a lot of trademarks attorneys I know also help with that kind of thing. Uh, and, 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 you know, th there are different ways that you can, as a trademark attorney, conti provide continuous service. But to answer your question directly is it's month to month. And I'm actually constrained in a lot of ways by legal ethics that I have to keep it month to month. If I were to do an annual subscription and give like a 10% discount or something like that, if they pay up front, the reality is, is according to legal ethics, if I haven't provided value for the service, if it doesn't become an earned fee, then I have to refund that money. So in my engagement agreement, which is public on my website, I want lawyers to start from that and adapt it to whatever jurisdiction you're in to meet your you know, legal ethical requirements for engage engagement. But my subscriptions specifically are an earned fee. They're they're like I'm I'm earning it up front for that month. Other stuff later on, like like flat fees on top of that, I, I bill at the time that service is delivered immediately. And to the extent that I can, I've automated all of that through my client portal. Uh, all using no code tools. I don't know how to code, but I did build out a bunch of automations using the technology that I use. So like I'll give you one example that I do I, I uh, real estate. So like if somebody were to hire me for to be the real estate attorney in Illinois, um, they could sign up at just $20 a month. And then I charge a flat fee of $450. Again, all my pricing is, is on my website. Now that's $200 less than the lowest price that other attorneys will charge in my state for a flat fee real estate closing. And the reason I charge less is because I, w I want my clients to stay subscribed after the real estate closing. So they might first come to me saying, this is my only legal need. I have an upcoming real estate closing. Now it's even better if they've been clients for other things and they're already paying me 20 or $100 a month, then, then I know they're coming to me. That's one of the value of the business model. They're already paying me. They're already asking me legal questions as things come up with their job, as things come up where they take their, you know, they, they hire a contractor that wants them to sign a contract. So if they're already using me, then when they have a real estate closing, I know they're coming to me, right? So, but that's a different example. In this example, they don't have a lawyer. They haven't hired me. Uh, they just signed a contract to buy a home and they're looking for a real estate attorney. Well, then they'll, they'll find me or I'll be referred to them or something. And, and I will only represent them if they sign up as a subscriber. So they sign up for $20. Then they, th then at the end, when, when we, when we've closed in two to three months, I'll make that $450 at the closing and they'll pay $20 a month up to that point. 
So it really, their, their savings is more like, you know, 160 to 140 to $160 in savings from hiring any other attorney. Uh, and, and so they're, they're, they're still saving money. But also, they're not just hiring a real estate attorney. They're hiring a fractionalized in-house counsel for their life. I can give them legal mm-hmm. advice about anything. And, and I'm not going to be billing them by the hour you know, to do that. So if I could provide value to them beyond just that real estate closing, then when the real estate closing is over, they could unsubscribe or they could stay subscribed. And I make it really easy to unsubscribe and resubscribe because other things come up and they already have the account with me. And if they unsubscribe, that's fine. Whenever they need legal advice in the future, they could resubscribe. So I make it really easy to unsubscribe, resubscribe. uh, And I just want to give them value to keep, you know, to stay subscribed month to month. But at least if it's month to month, I don't have to refund them money if they decide to unsubscribe later, you know, to bring it back to the legal ethics thing. So, so that's sort of the way that it works. The same thing is true for like estate planning. You know, I live very close to where we had that shooting tragedy in Highland Park, Illinois. I live just a town over. And so people are thinking about what happens when the unexpected happens. They want an, an estate plan. And I offer probably the most affordable estate plan, at, at least in my area, uh, <laughs> because I, I want people to stay subscribed with me because they're going to have other questions. I even offer a very affordable uh, amount for if you ever want to make changes to your estate plan. It, you know, it's just a, it's, a, it's a very small amount every month and you could reach out to me and we'll do a change. We'll do an amendment. It doesn't take that much time. I'm using document automation. So like it really doesn't take me much time. And I've made sure that the that the wills, you know, and, and advanced medical directives that I'm using are solid, you know, so uh, and if I need to update them, I will. But I use document automation. It takes me like no time to do to put this together. I just have to get the answers to the questions for the automation software that I'm using. Right. So why am I billing by the hour? It take me 30 minutes to do it. You know, if you break that down in a billable hour rate, I'm still kind of making like 250 to 300 an hour. But I don't think about it like that. Um, and so if and so anyway, so I incentivize people to stay subscribed. I try to give them value on a month to month basis in, in the subscription economy. We call this lifetime value LTV. And, and I'm trying to build mm-hmm. that for, um, you know, for a legal practice. And it's very new. And so I have to educate people on, you know, why? Why do I need a lawyer? I could read. Well, a contract is kind of like like when you look at a contract or a legal document, what a lawyer sees is like a quadratic equation, right? Like we're we're seeing like all, all the complexities of it. Like we're not mathematicians, but like that's what we see. If a person's reading a contract, like I could read, they see like maybe some advanced arithmetic or like um you, you know, but but they're they're missing so much and they don't know it because it's just words. Like we learn how to read when we're in elementary school. But but there's a lot of nuances that just get missed when a, you know what we call a layperson you know, is reading a contract. And so it, it really helps for them to hire somebody at a very affordable, transparent rate to help explain what they're, at least what they're getting into. A lot of, a lot of what I do, and I didn't know I would be doing is just people who are like going to sign an employment contract. They just want to know what it means. You know, they don't want to negotiate it necessarily. You know, they don't want to, uh, you know, figure that they just want to know what am, what am I getting myself into? And for just a couple hundred bucks, and it, it turns out, you know, being depending on the size of the, the contract, I could explain that to them. And then they know whether or not they want to sign that, you know, that employment contract, right? Um, to just go in fully informed versus hiring a lawyer, you know, at 250, 300 an hour. It's, why would they ever hire a lawyer to, to help them understand that? It just doesn't make any sense. No, and, and, and I would sit there and say, uh, coming back from uh, my experience with the, the real estate, uh, the real estate attorney type of thing, there, there was no guarantee. It was like, everybody was trying to, 
the person that I was fighting against, because he he was also a former lawyer, I left that out of my story earlier, he was looking for the holes in his own contract, essentially, that he had given us and was successful at being able at being able to do that. And it was not something we projected going forward into there. So I think it's good. I want to come back to, you, you know, you talked about value-based fees and some of the ethics within there. And that was not something that I was really familiar with within the legal industry, that, that you were kind of constrained with how you can handle that. So, so with this, with your particular model, it doesn't, I mean, it allows for somebody that has a much more complex case or something that's going on. That's got a lot of, a lot more variables, a lot more moving parts in there to eat up potentially more, more of your time. Is there, do you have triggers involved of that? If you start getting all of these third party extraneous factors, because you come into an offshoot that may not line up, exactly with some of the documentation some of the tools that you have in place to account for to account for somebody going on hey you've got your 15 minute block segments for the 20 bucks an hour but you've got somebody that went in there and and booked all eight you know all eight blocks for two hours up to to manage that based on complexity of cases i, I would drop that client the next month this is why this is the value of month to month <laughs> But 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 it is. You're absolutely right, and I I haven't run into any of that yet. My clients respect you know my time, and the reality is, is as I as my business grows, I'm answering client questions and I'm building up a knowledge base. So I I, I if I answer a client question that I think I'm going to get a lot of, I'll put it into writing. I'll remove personally identifying information, but it's actual legal advice I gave to an actual client, and all of my subscribers have access to that knowledge base, and so they can try to search that knowledge base first and say. You know, maybe, you know, may, maybe Kerbis has already answered this question or it gets close to answering a question, but they have a slight nuance. So then they'll book a call with me and I've already kind of gotten them part of the way to the answer because they've read, you know, another landlord tenant dispute type situation in my knowledge base. Right. So, uh, you know, th their time is valuable. So they have other things to do. They're not going to book my full two hours. You know, that if, if you have a problem, like for my estate planning clients, if they sign up at twenty dollars a month. 15 minutes is not enough time with them to do my document automation. I need half hour to an hour. So what I do is I send them a, another link. I use Calendly. I love Calendly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I send them a, another link that's a 45-minute meeting, and we should be able to wrap it in 45 minutes. So like when other needs come up, like if they're hiring me beyond the $20 a month, which they are if they want an estate plan, if they want like a basic will and advanced medical directives, right, uh, I'll send them a link for a longer meeting for us to answer that, you know, that question. Let's say with like the landlord tenant dispute type stuff, I, I have a popular package that I call the entry level negotiation package or the premium negotiation package with, with the, um, the negotiation package is just another $200 a month. Well, $199.99. Again, I'm communicating with consumers the way they're used to be communicated with, right? So for another $200 a month, I'll do the, I'll communicate with your tenant for you, right? Or I'll communicate with the other party. And from lawyers I've heard, are like, only 200 a month? You know, what if you're on the phone with them all the time? I'm like, well, sure. I'm only getting 200 a month, so I'm gonna be as efficient with my time as possible. I'm gonna get down to brass tacks. We're gonna solve the problem quickly, which makes the client, so the incentives are aligned, right? I'm gonna make my client happier, you know, by getting the, the issue resolved sooner. And, and I'm gonna be efficient with the use of my time. And it's all about scale. It's about volume. So yeah, from one client, you know, if they're signed up for $220 a month, that's not gonna, you know, be enough. But if I, you know, you, you get 10, then you get 20, then you get 30. And, and everything's calendared. Like I live by my calendar, right? I don't let myself get double booked. 
you know, the only exception to that is like when an emergency happens with the kiddo, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> but I'll re- you know, it's very easy to send a reschedule link, you know, and and so and I really don't pick up the phone. I really don't. Uh, my my message, my my, I, you know, I, I if I like see a client's calling in and I was expecting you know the call because we're resolving an issue, I'll pick up the phone. But I'm trying to train my clients and opposing counsel or the attorney on the other side of the transaction to book a time with me. Let's schedule a time. It's better for everyone. You know, if we just get on each other's calendar and be more efficient with the use of our time than picking up random phone calls and answering phone calls. Like my voice message says, go to my website and schedule a call with me. <laughs> I mean, like it's right there on my website. The very first page says schedule a call, especially for new clients that are th- interested. Like get a, get on my calendar. Let's have a 15-minute conversation. It's not a free consultation because it's only $20 a month to actually get legal advice. <laughs> so there you it's, it's, it's funny. I'll go on a side tangent. There is still a lot of people resistant to using the calendar link for some reason. I have it with booking the podcast. I have it with other things. And it's not just even me. I, I hear it. I see people complain about it. And it's one of those things. Well, we can go back and forth 25 times and figure out a time. Or you can just click that button and find it in three seconds. And I don't understand the resistance to that. I don't know if that's old school. The lawyers that I have been around, I won't sit there and say that in most cases they were actually technologically adept. So congratulations on you even using no-code tools <laughs> to start automating those things. <laughs> so true. Um, so I, I want to make sure I heard this right because you, you've said a lot and, and when I later when I started and I want to make sure I heard this right. You did you you started on your own practice March of this year or did you start using this model March of this year? No, I, I left a billable hour firm. I, I have I have eight okay. years of, of experience. And so I've been practicing sure. law for eight years. But I've been I was originally going to launch a subscription model at the old firm. But it's okay. very hard okay. to build a practice within a practice. And that was a firm that was primarily litigation. And I had this growing okay. transactional practice. And I had an opportunity to – I had, a, I had a, just, just like three clients that were interested in the subscription model. But I had to build them by the hour at this firm. And so I was right. building a model. And, and my old firm has all of that, right? Like, like they have all of that. If they ever wanted to launch a subscription model, they totally can. But I wanted to build my own brand because trade names are allowed – for law firms in every state now, thanks to a, a law firm that wanted to that like litigated in states saying uh, that they that the, the legal ethics preventing trade names from being used. Like they still like we still have to comply with certain things. Like I can't say best law firm in Illinois LLC. Like I can't like you know have that type of trade name. But uh, I went with subscription attorney and, uh, because it says what I am, and I wanted to build a brand. And instead of it being my name, I, I know that maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, if I ever wanted to sell my practice, I could sell that brand too, right? And right. because it's built like a, like, like a, like a SaaS business, uh, software as a service business, but it's actually a service as a service on a subscription, right? I, I, there's predictable monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue, and you could see the projections over time, right? So like I could eventually sell like the law firm and it's, it's selling the brand. Right? And I have, I have no desire to do that in the near near term. Right? Like I want to build this practice. I want to continue to grow it. My clients so far are very happy. And I don't need to be a millionaire. I don't need it. Would it be nice? Yeah, sure. But I mean, if I could hit, you know, half a million a year in, in terms of what I'm of, of like profit that I'm, you know, bringing back home, that would be great. I'm not there yet, um, but I could see that. And then I could also help a lot of people because that's at the end of the day, a lot of lawyers go to law school thinking I'm going to help a lot of people. 
but you, you don't. You end up working for an insurance defense company or for, you know, for corporations, and you're not really helping people the, the way you thought you would. And so it's not that fulfilling of a job, which is why you hear about rampant alcoholism and mental health issues and, you know, lawyers like dying of heart attacks at their desk, you know. And, and, and so that, that's what it comes down to is that's what I want to do. But, but yes, March of this year, I left and, and decided to implement the plan on my own. Uh, that I was kind of talking about with my last firm from word and from word go. So word go, you were doing that. This was okay. That's what I wanted. To, yeah. Sorry. That's what I wanted to clarify that you didn't, I couldn't remember where the transition, the way, the way that you had phrased it earlier, that you had transitioned to it going, hold up, this isn't working. I don't like doing this anymore. Okay. But, but it's tried and true in a way that lawyers for like the last 10 years, there have been lawyers using the subscription model. I just wanted to put mm -hmm. my own spin on it. Do you think there's any practice that's out there? And I would say maybe the more the ones that are more litigation, they're more in the courtroom or something like that, that this particular model may not fit or may not work because of, again, I'll go back to there's too many X factors. There's too many intangibles. There's too many things outside of your control, because I do the more I'm hearing this, the way I see it. And I'll make sure I have links in the in the descriptions for your website and everything, the way you structured your packages it makes the work that you do relatively repeatable because I'm all about systems. I'm all about frameworks the, because that ensures one, you can deliver faster than others. If you've got a reliable framework and the clients can ensure that they're getting the same service across the board because you don't want to be all over the map. Everybody may have different situations, but you're delivering repeatable, consistent quality service every single time from the go. But do you think there's other sorts of practices that this model, because of too many X factors, you're like, yeah, I don't know that this this would fit with them because of just how it, how that part of the law functions. Again, very astute observation shows like you 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 know you know what you're doing, and it's also a very good question, and it's a question I get a lot from lawyers, right? It's like, well, I'm a criminal defense attorney, I don't want repeat offenders. I mean, I do, but I don't, <laughs> right? right? I don't want to incentivize repeat offenders. Um, so yes, litigation and criminal defense are two of the hardest areas to adapt the subscription model to, at least when it comes to when you think of a traditional like law practice. For litigation, it does depend on the context, but especially for like high volume litigation, foreclosure defense, uh, insurance defense. Um, uh, I mean, depending on like, you know, other sort of high volume type work, you could, you could do a subscription plus flat fee model and make it work real well. There's a flat fee up front, and I do have like a formula for this that you could plug it in. Uh, uh, you, you know, flat fee up front. This isn't the full formula, but I'm giving a tease. Uh, flat fee up front, <laughs> a monthly amount, month to month, as the case is ongoing, plus costs. So like, you know, like deposition fees and, and travel fees and stuff, because those probably won't, won't always be covered by the monthly amount per month. And then you have to give them an incentive to actually end the case. So there's a flat fee when you settle the case, and it's resolved through a way that's not trial. And there's a much higher uh, flat fee, you know, per day or per month or per week for trial for each week, right? And so, uh, and, and I think that aligns all incentives. You have a you have a carrot for the attorneys that they get if they settle a case in two months, then they're going to make more money in those two months because they get the flat fee when you settle the case too. Right? It's not just month to month. So like the levels of how much they're getting month to month and the amount of the flat fee up front and the flat fee at the end, you know, that has to be strategically implemented. Right. And so and I have some formulas that I could help other lawyers with if they wanted to do that. But it's very new. It's very innovative. 
litigation firms are very hesitant to do this. And the, the, the companies that are hiring them are very used to the billable hour. But the reality is, is there's so much waste chasing down bills, reducing bills, hunting bills. You could just get rid of all those costs. And, and, and then you know exactly what you're going to be paying depending on how long the case is going to go. You know exactly what it's going to what – you, what you're making as an attorney. You know exactly what you're paying you know, as the client. Like insurance companies should love this idea. You know, but, but we'll see. We'll see. It's still very new. It's still very new. And I have had some talks with some people at insurance companies to start demanding that their outside counsel law firms do this kind of thing. Uh, so we'll see if that if that goes anywhere. For criminal defense, there are other ways to use your legal knowledge as an attorney on the subscription model. And that is like building a course on how to comply with all your probation requirements, right? And so it's still using your legal knowledge. You're still giving legal advice, but it's not like what you traditionally think of as a criminal defense attorney. But you could put that on a subscription. So, okay, it was a flat – a lot of criminal defense attorneys um, – that do like a more higher volume, they do like a flat fee. Like it's like a flat fee to like whatever this DUI case or that. Like some of them charge by the hour, but I've seen a growing amount of criminal defense attorneys use flat fees. So let's say, you know, you charge X amount for flat fee and you you, you get them, uh, you know, they're on probation instead of serving time. And then you offer them a $50 a month course to, to make sure they comply with probation and they don't become a repeat offender. Or may, and, and the reason you charge 50 is because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You record the course and you're good to go. And maybe that includes they can book some time with you to ask you a question kind of a thing. And maybe $50 is too low. Maybe it's too high. It depends on your market, how much time you're willing to invest in that course and how much time outside of the pre-recorded material are you going to be you know, talking to these people. You have to price it based on that. I think this is something where uh, I'll, I'll put another business idea into your head for down the road. Once you really, I mean, I mean, obviously you're a big advocate. It's working for you. It's still, you know, March of this year, it, it is still new. And there's probably a lot of things that you got to give more time, more clients to see repeatable. This would be awesome in the medical community because I see a lot of parallels between legal and that, that you become kind of the business model subscription like how to apply these principles to other industries and you go around and start teaching how to do that and what are it's again think of that think of vets for instance the the places where the pricing is always an unknown for the consumer that needs it and needs it in a hurry because it's an emergency situation in a lot of those cases because i go back to the hey preventative is way better than being prescriptive after the fact every single time so anyway just yeah yeah no i'm sitting there i'm listening to you talk and i'm sitting there thinking about my conversations with others like in the medical community my own experience because i've had a lot more with that and i'm going man this is the same thing except you're just legal and and you just don't know you get the mystery bill in the mail from something from four months ago i got one recently that's why that's popping into my head (laughs) yeah 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 and and, and it's true but really any any professional service right consulting uh coaching like I like a lot of like like legal coaches who I know like they're basically doing a subscription. It's a month to month fee to like get coaching, right? They're already kind of doing it. So like any professional CPAs, like they they could probably do this, right? Some of them just operate on flat fees, but like there, there's ways to be providing added value. And if somebody's already paying you, even if it's like Netflix Netflix level prices, which is part of the reason why I have that entry level at twenty dollars, I'm competing. <laughs> I'm competing with Netflix. I'm competing with Amazon Prime. I'm at a price level that consumers are already paying to have access to other things, and, and that's what they're getting with me. The twenty dollars a month isn't like 
all your legal problems solved, but it's access to legal advice. It's access to below market flat fee rates. And I'm, it allows me to build a relationship with them. So when they have more problems, they come back to me. Same thing with medical, same thing with financial advisors, same thing with consultants, with coaches. The model is completely adaptable to other professional services without a question. I want to transition a little bit away from that, more back to a little bit of the general legal stuff. And then we, I, I've got some ABA in your, uh, for those listening, his Curvis verse. Um, uh, <laughs> but do you think, and correct me if I'm wrong, for, for people just graduating with their legal degree, you talked about all the major student loans. Isn't it true that, it, again, I'm going to make a parallel to the medical industry, that they get to get tossed into the fire upon graduating law school, it's long hours, it's long days, they're trying to make a name for themselves, they're trying to do, is that, is, am, am I correct in that assumption? That a lot of lawyers do end up like that, yes. And, and it's and it's relative, it's relative, but yeah, typically, I'd say that's a fair assessment. So is there any advantage with the practice use, utilizing this methodology that makes revenue more predictable, that would ease up some of that Unnecessary. I don't. I don't want to necessarily say unnecessary, but some of the stress that's invoked on recent graduates that come out with that idealism of going, "I want to help people. I'm going to be the champion for X, Y, Z," and then they find they're sitting there doing freaking paperwork half the time, and they're not really in. You know, they're they're spending so much time doing things that can be automated or things that may not be unnecessary. Is there any relief from that that's not necessary? It's more qualitative versus quantitative. Right, right. I, I, I think absolutely. And it's, it is hard to measure, right? Like you said, but, um, and, and this even goes back to like earlier, your point about the woman attorney who had all her time sheets, you know, everything listed out. If you're going to bill eight hours a day, you're going to need to work at least 10 hours, probably more. Right. right? And, and, the best way, like the way I did it when I was actually like before the pandemic where like everything changed, uh, I, I had a whiteboard and I would like the night before I left the office, I would put on my whiteboard, here's potential 10 hours of billable time tomorrow. So at least that way, if I don't get to all of it, I still try to bill eight hours the next day. So like planning like was really important. It was really stressful, right? Because like if I didn't bill all my time, you know, I could lose my job. I wouldn't get my bonus. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and so like, there's all these stressors put on and I, I like, you kind of need your bonus because you have student loans, you know, and then, you know, if you're lucky, you know, you have a mortgage or childcare or something, you know, that you're paying for too. So like, uh, and, and believe me with the billable hour, the way that it's structured, it's like a pyramid, right? Where, where like a reverse pyramid where the people on the bottom are billing all the time, but the most of the money's made <laughs> by the people on top. Right. And, and that, and that's stressful. And you don't really see that because very quickly you get tunnel vision. And you're like, I need to bill up my time to make money to pay off my debt. And like, that's like what a lot of graduates are going through. Um, but this model does allow you to, yeah, I mean, streamline things, not have to work 10 hours straight to bill eight hours. You could do other things. You know, you could still be productive. You know, you could work on your automations. You could get out there and build and build a book of business. Because the reality is, is you could have the best, most efficient practice ever. And, and this is a tease for Law Subscribe for any potential lawyers listening is I did just interview an attorney coach about building a book of business. Because if you don't have the business, it doesn't matter how streamlined and efficient and, you know, your practice is for repeatable business and repeatable procedures and processes if you can't bring in clients, right? And, and you can't build, you can't have the mentality of if you build it, they will come. Although to a certain extent that actually has kind of worked with me, but like just like for like one scheduled call a week, like like I'm not I'm doing some very targeted marketing because uh, I'm still 
only, you know, five, six months into this thing. So I have more time than money right now to spend on that kind of thing. But I'm doing some very targeted paid marketing that is working, but I'm not doing a crazy amount. And I am still having people find me because of, you know, the way, because there's not, I'm not competing on Google with the term subscription attorney, right? So like if somebody, like some of the targeted things I'm doing, you know, they, they're able to be like, oh, what's this subscription attorney thing? And they Google it and I'm the top hit because there's no one else competing, you know, with that name and that type of space, right? So um, so it kind of depends. You know, I, I think it can solve a lot of those problems. There are a lot of mental health issues that are associated with what I just talked about that uh, that attorneys face. And, and that's a risk for the clients. Clients don't want an attorney with mental health problems, right? <laughs> or, or too much stress. Like it's not good for the client. It's not good for the lawyer. It's not good for the client. I think the subscription model can help solve you know, that problem among many others, there's other things like billable hours don't really comport with being like a mom and, and being a practicing attorney. And we see a lot of women being pushed out of the profession and pushed out of leadership at big firms. We have more women going to law school now uh, than we've ever had before. They've, there've been more women going to law school than men for many years now. And you're still not seeing that reflected in leadership at law firms in, in the profession. Why not? because they have to build their time. It's incentivized to not be efficient and smart about their practice. And, and as, as I know from being married now for a while and having a daughter, women are smarter than men. So, 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 but the, so the billable hour like doesn't comport with that. And so women are leaving. And most of the people I've had on my podcast, most of the innovative attorney, attorneys in the space are women. And so the, the model really works for them. And it's a way for them to have a more fulfilling and balanced life. I mean, for all lawyers, you know, that decide to use this model. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't know how the structure of this works. You've referenced a couple of times, you know, licensed only in Illinois. Is this something that you're hoping because this, this, this takes geographic boundaries away in a lot of, in a lot of instances, because you've got automation, you've got a client portal and you're not doing in-person, you know, litigation in a courtroom type of stuff. Is it possible for you to go, hey, I, you know, I want to go next door to Michigan. I want to go to Ohio, you know, or, or uh, Wisconsin, you know, neighboring states. I don't know how that how that functions. Is that is that a possibility for you as you're looking to expand? Uh, so uh, th there is within the ABA right now, we're looking at the model rules of ethics that lawyers have to follow. Like I talked about this in the in the billing sense earlier, but this also there are also restrictions on multi-jurisdictional practice. And so those barriers, we're trying to remove those barriers right now, where as long as it's not going to court, like this is like the proposal. And I'm, I'm really like simplifying this. But essentially, if I'm not going to court for somebody, I don't have to be licensed in that jurisdiction specifically as long as I give them a disclaimer that says, hey, I'm not licensed in Michigan. Uh, but to the extent that I'm going to represent you, I'm going to still comply with my other ethical requirements of like researching the Michigan laws before giving you advice. Right. Uh, but I can't go to court on your behalf. And so like that's like what we're looking at changing in the profession. But it's not changed yet. So that could take four or five years. By then, I should have a very robust, thriving practice, and I would be happy when that change happens and I could expand into other states. But in the meantime, as a solo practitioner, I'm only licensed in the state of Illinois. And so I, there, there are certain um, jurisdictions where I could get reciprocity, but usually you only get that when you're going to court for somebody. Like I do have some Florida clients who are transacting in the state of Illinois. But Florida doesn't do reciprocity. I'd have to sit for another bar exam, and I am never taking another test in my life if I could avoid <laughs> it. So, um, so we'll see. We will see. Um, some lawyers have different opinions than that. Some lawyers think, well, as long as I'm not going to court, I could, I could just apply that state's law. 
I disagree with that. I think you're engaged in the unlicensed practice of law at that point. And every state has different rules on multi-jurisdictional practice. So I could, but, but so what, what am I doing? Well, with Law Subscribed, my, one of my goals is with that podcast is not just to have a podcast, but to have a community of innovative attorneys that we could refer business across state lines to each other. Uh, for trademark attorneys, that's federal law. So they have a multi-jurisdictional practice across the whole U.S., which is another one of the reasons why that's where the subscription model started. They could do that for anyone, anywhere, right? It's a federal practice. Uh, but I'm filling like a hole in the market. Like That's what I'm trying to do. The big law firms, like if you were to hire you know, a big giant law firm, they have attorneys licensed in every state. That's why they could represent you anywhere. Right there, and that's why they cost you, you know, five hundred to a thousand dollars an hour. Uh, uh, and 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 so there is a need. Like I'm so glad you brought it up, John, because like, like the bar associations need to look at this. It's like this is an opportunity to fill the access to justice gap. You know, this is a, this is that opportunity. But I am restricted by my license. Every state has its own license for attorneys. Every jurisdiction, I should say. So explain a little bit about the American Bar Association. Are there other bar associations? Is that the primary one? That, that kind of influences what you can and can't do? Is that who sets the rules? Oh, besides state laws and, you know, legislatures and things of that nature. But as far as, is that like a governing body for lawyers, essentially? Yeah, so, so in the state of Illinois, um, that is the Illinois Supreme Court that makes those rules. We do have an Illinois State Bar Association, and we have local bars like the Chicago Bar Association, uh, the Cook County Bar Association. You know, there are all different sorts of bar associations. There's like the you know Asian American Bar Association. They're, 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 and then they have different chapters in different states. Like so, it's all kind of like it's different depending on which bar association. But the American Bar Association is the largest one in in the United States, and that is um, uh, and a lot of what they put out there isn't required that other uh, states and their licensing authorities follow. But they're looked at as model rules that the other ones often adopt because the ABA has input from all the other licensing jurisdictions. Um, there are certain things that the ABA does that are mandatory and required. I mean, but we could spend an hour just on all that. Uh, <laughs> I'm and, sure. <laughs> and, and so like a lot of what bar associations do is they don't just come up with rules and regulations for lawyers. Um, they also uh, like have like ethics opinions. So like, um, you know, the, the ABA has their model rules of ethics. The Illinois, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court of Illinois has adopted those in part and made some unique things to Illinois, some changes for Illinois. And then like the Illinois State Bar Association will put out opinions. You know, they have lawyers that are volunteering that they'll put out opinions on what they think these rules mean and what that means you can and can't do as a lawyer. So they're all kind of interacting. Some some jurisdictions like I can't remember which state there, there, there's a handful of states where actually their bar association is the licensing authority. Uh, so every state is kind of is is different. With with your uh, work and volunteer with with the ABA, is that where you got the opportunity to uh, interview and speak to some Supreme Court justices? Can you talk yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, so I uh, there, there's like um, there's a publication is like a huge part of bar associations in general across the board. Uh, and the ABA has some of the widest readership because we're talking about lawyers and, you know, all, all across really the world. There's international membership, too, in the American Bar Association. So in the Young Lawyers Division, which is what I, I was a leader, I'm a current leader in that division right now, um, I was on like the publishing team, essentially. I was a managing editor on the publishing team, associate the managing editor. And so you work with authors from all over, like I, I got to interview and have like uh, this guy uh, who was the first video game lawyer uh, from the UK. 
uh, like write an article about what it was like to be the first video game lawyer. Like, so there's like some really cool stuff like that that I don't like have in my bio, right? But like really fun, really cool things. But then also as like on the publishing team, I also just got to interview people that would have great, you know, ideas or um, have like an expertise that we want to pull from where it's not really, we don't want them to write an article because their time is valuable, but maybe we want them, we just want to do like an interview with them. And so I've been able to, you know, meet and work with um, state Supreme Court justices. So, you know, every state has their own state courts. So it's like the the justices I've interviewed are state uh, appellate justices and Supreme Court justices, not like the U.S. federal Supreme Court, right? Um, but those people were actually people I already knew. I, I externed for the appellate uh, judge that I interviewed when I was in law school. And uh, and okay. one of the uh, state Supreme Court justices, I, I knew she was on another board with me in the ABA. I was the young lawyer liaison to the section of legal education. They're the accrediting body. So so they're part of the ABA, but they're separate from the ABA because they, they could kind of do whatever they need to do apart from the ABA's opinion, the section of legal education when it comes to accreditation of law schools. Actually, the U.S. Department of Education has delegated its authority to accredit law schools to the ABA section of legal education. So you have deans of law schools, you have private practitioners, you have state Supreme Court justices uh, who are on that that body. And I was a young lawyer, private practitioner. <laughs> you know, so very impressive, maybe one of the most impressive groups I'll ever have the honor of working with. And uh, and I got to be the voice of young lawyers, you know, on that board. And and so I got to know these state supreme that's awesome. these state supreme court justices. So I since I was also doing the volunteer publishing stuff, I just asked them. I said, hey, you know, I think you'd be great to interview for this. Um, would you be willing to do that? And she was like, yeah, absolutely, of course I would. And her interview has been republished and like put up in different ways so many times because it was such a valuable interview. No, that's awesome. Well, as uh, going to start wrapping up here in a couple of minutes, I want to touch on something else. So everybody's heard of the Marvel multiverse. I've had multiple people in the virtual reality space. So I've had multiple conversations on the metaverse and I'm getting ready to introduce everybody to the Kerbisverse. I So there's a whole website. I'm going to make sure there's a link on there. But the one thing I was very curious about was what is involved in being an esports agent was triggered from your comment about me and the video game attorney because when I grew up playing video games, you fought with your siblings on who was going to have the controller. Sitting there watching other people play was not in the, that was unfathomable. And now there's gigantic industries where people don't even want to play. They just want to watch other good people. So what, what is your role in being an esports agent? So, so, uh, so uh, John, you are such a good researcher that uh, all you had to do is Google me. And I'm pretty sure it's like on the first page, but, uh, but I don't actually like market uh, the Kerbis first. Right. Uh, so it's just kind of something that I have out there. And, uh, and I actually use it for like my speaker portfolio. So like when this goes live, I'll be adding that to my speaker portfolio on kerbisverse.com. It, it has like my public speaking on there. So all the interviews, everything I've ever been on. And, and that's actually really good for like media. So like if, if you need to speak on something else, you can be like, here's my speaker portfolio. So for me, it's kerbisverse.com slash hashtag speaker portfolio. And I could just share that link. Someone could go to that and they could be like, okay, this is what he's like on camera. This is what he's like on audio. Mm -hmm. um, Great, I think it'd be a good interview. So, like, it's part of my press kit, essentially, too. That link, and I also actually also have a press kit link uh, that, that, that that you can't actually get to from. Kirby. 
purpose first or from subscription attorney. I have different uh, press kits depending on what I'm what I'm promoting. Um, and, and so I've, I've put together all these other things that I'm doing under another uh, under an LLC that I've incorporated as Kerbis First LLC. So I have my law firm, Subscription Attorney LLC, and Kerbis First LLC. They are two completely separate and distinct entities. Of course, they're um, sole member LLCs, right? So it's just me in both of them. But um, uh, but under Kerbis First is where like I've kind of put together all these other side projects that I've been doing for years. Um, and they're all, I'm not really marketing them. I, I have had some interest in the esports agent thing, but it's really something that I'm still developing. And the reason I've had interest in it is because I do attend a lot of like video game developer and um, like esport events type things virtually. I, there, there is a big event happening in Chicago. Uh, I think even at the time of recording, it might be going on right now. Um, so when I attend those events and I get to meet up and comer streamers, or esport athletes, you know, they have actually reached out to me through my professionalgameragent.com brand. So I have a number of brands, and my law subscribe, my podcast brand is under Kerbis vs. LLC. So the professionalgameragent.com brand is still something that's very new. I've actually been reading a lot of legal books on the video game industry written by lawyers. There's there's only three of them that I found so far on like the esports side. Uh, on the game development side, there's actually a lot of information there because it's just like any other company, software company, right? But on the esports yep. side, there's not too many – there's some parallels with like being an agent for an athlete. However, uh, it's not regulated like that. Like it's still kind of the Wild West. And so you have to be very careful. There's not really industry standards for being an agent. There are agencies, but I'm trying to be – that representation, it's a way for me to use my legal knowledge to help them negotiate contracts and deals with the platforms that they're streaming on, or it's more streaming has been the interest, like up and coming streamers that maybe want to get into esports. But they get brand deals, you know, they get other sorts of uh, uh, affiliate or advertising opportunities, and it's just helping them negotiate those deals. And it's not, um, it, it's not legal advice. Like, I have to be very careful. You know, like you, you hear about lawyers going into, um, you know, be, becoming like a sports agent. They're not acting as lawyers because they're also probably not licensed where all those contracts are happening, right? They're licensed in one <laughs> jurisdiction, which goes ties back into the earlier question that you had. So, uh, so I'm not giving legal advice, but I'm using my legal expertise and knowledge and skills to essentially consult as an agent to help them, you know, with whatever brand deals and streaming opportunities that are coming up. That's the idea. I, I have some people signed up but they haven't achieved those opportunities yet. And I'm not the agent that's like out there booking deals for them. I'm the agent who's helping them not be taken advantage of and end up they're like licensing their brand in perpetuity in exchange for something I'm helping them. This goes back into the type of legal services that I do offer, which is I'm helping people avoid big future legal problems up front. And I'm trying to do that in this space, which I think is going to explode. I think that that so many so yep. many people are trying to stream on Twitch and YouTube and now Facebook is really investing a lot into live streaming and so there's a lot of brand opportunities there for streamers but also just to to play competitively as an esport athlete uh, uh you know that is sort of a natural transition back and forth and they want that they want esports athletes to have uh, to be streamers as well because then they could improve the you know the brand of that esports team right so like it all comes down to like branding and marketing and so like you want to have both really and so if i could i'm trying to get them on the front end and then that way i can help them not be taken advantage of down the line because you are starting to see stories of you know some kid you know got taken advantage of 
and you know by some esports team right. or some brand, and now they're they're screwed. And I want to prevent that from happening. And I am a lifelong gamer. I've been playing games since before I can remember. I said sitting on my dad's lap playing the original Mario, you know, like at two years old, right? <laughs> so I've been playing games my whole life since becoming a parent. Not so much, <laughs> but um, uh, but it is something that I'm personally passionate about, and that I know a lot about the industry. So that's one of the reasons why I am trying to move into that space. Though I'm not marketing it. I'm just kind of putting it out there when I attend these events. Hey, I you know I'm I'm a new esports agent, and if you're interested, you know, here's my website, and you could sign up with me. So, no, that's that's awesome. Curious, there's a bunch of stuff there, and everybody will be able to check it out. This has been this has been an awesome conversation. I've enjoyed it. Once you, I, once some of those other things get rolling, I want to get back because those are definitely different niches that are uh, uh, would be I think would be interesting, particularly to up and coming market spaces. So, but what is the uh, what, what's the best way to reach out to you? Is it through the subscription attorney website? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram? What's all of the above? Yeah, yeah well, well, I am everywhere, um, as you have to be these days. Uh, but if you search Matthew Kerbis, Matthew with one T, uh, on LinkedIn, or you search the subscription attorney, um, I should be up there. My DMs are open. I encourage you to connect with me on there. Subscriptionattorney.com. If you're if you're interested in looking at the model, or if you happen to be in Illinois, you need to hire an attorney. I, you could schedule a call with me right from the very first page of the website. So I highly recommend you do that. Any lawyers? Lawsubscribe.com. Uh, that that's where the podcast is, and on all your favorite podcast you know apps and platforms, it's there too. Um, but LinkedIn's probably the best way if they want to get a hold of me. I, I I don't I monitor that closer than I monitor email because I'm more in my client portal than my email. <laughs> so LinkedIn and my client portal are the best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, this has been fun. I appreciate your the time today. This has been an engaging conversation. Thanks, John. It was great to be here.